Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with medical literature, but the pubs are open, the sun is out, and you have no idea how long it's going to last. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to another episode of Journal Spotting. If this is your first dose of the podcast, we'd like to remind you that it's a large dose of evidence-based medicine concocted by a team of doctors from the UK. A single dose will offer partial protection against ignorance of the most practice-changing medical articles. But for full protection, hit subscribe and listen back to the last 32 episodes. Side effects include not feeling guilty you haven't read that huge pile of BMJs piling up in the corner, exposure to bad jokes, and occasionally looking smug and a ward round because you remembered that there's a link between hookworms and multiple sclerosis. Good to put those warnings in there, Barney. Those side effects are very tough. Uh, I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Very excited to be back. Yeah, and today joining us is uh, myself, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and the wonderful Alvin and fantastic Cammy. Great to have you both with us, guys. Do you want to introduce yourselves again and maybe let us know what you're most excited about doing now we've got a bit more freedom from lockdown <laughs> yeah thanks for having me back guys uh, so i'm alvin Shrester. yeah i'm just looking forward to a bit of normality again to be honest you know playing some sports eating out who knows i might even leave the country this year to go on holiday that is not uh, not emigrating just yet. <laughs> yeah. Be a strange place to announce to your family. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cammie Hirons. Um, what am I looking forward to? I think I'm just looking forward to seeing more friends, not just for my own sanity, but for our little son's sanity, whose main question each day is, shall we play in the lounge or the kitchen, mummy? <laughs> lucky guy, lucky guy. <laughs> I am looking forward to, as I think, the vast majority of the population is going to the pub. Having a haircut. Having a... <laughs> <laughs> no, not having, having a haircut. Is it? Any shorter. Can you, you can go shorter. Come on. Um, yeah. No, I think going to the pub, having a nice pint, oh, chilling out with some friends, that sort of thing. That's going to be amazing. Barney, I am looking forward to going to the pub with you. Isn't that a nice thought? Sitting in a pub together. I haven't no, seen you for like, in per- we haven't seen any of us for like a year. It's been a year almost. It's been a long yeah, time. Back a year ago, we used to sort of find this little uh, little room in the chest department at St Thomas's, occasionally a cupboard, and we snuck into this little room where the cleaners keep banging on the door. And did what? <laughs> <laughs> we were getting to know each other. All oh, right. All the best podcasts Moving. are made in the cupboard. Moving <laughs> swiftly on, <laughs> we have got a cracking episode lined up. We've got articles on liver cirrhosis oxygen and acute coronary syndrome, new evidence on vitamin D and chest infection, and how long is long enough for a course of antibiotics. We're embracing the new reality that COVID is here to stay, and as such, you'll note that we're going to cover some important COVID-19 updates for you. And finally, Alvin's going to share with us some really useful articles on AKI and dialysis. Before we start, usual reminder, guys, don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts subscribe to the show on whatever you like and you can get in touch via all the regular social media channels or journalspotting at gmail.com right now we're going to kick things off with a bit of a cirrhosis special john what have you journal spotted 
Yeah, well, uh, Barney, if you're like me and you've um, sort of very excitedly subscribed to the New England Journal to get it in print, uh, there's quite an overwhelming number that come through the door. I mean, they come thick and fast and, you, you know, you've barely figured out how to pronounce nivolumab before the next one's waiting to be read. But sometimes one issue really grabs your attention. And that was the case on the 4th of March when the New England Journal ran two important hepatology trials. I'm going to cover the one on albumin and then Alvin is going to give us the lowdown on the use of terlipressin. So albumin transfusions seem pretty embedded into our practice in patients with liver cirrhosis. Large volume paracentesis, albumin. Patient with SPP, albumin. Patient with hepatorenal syndrome, give albumin. I mean, I'm surprised it wasn't an arm of the recovery trial. It seems to be used so much. But this attire trial was a multi-center trial in the UK for patients admitted to hospital with decompensated cirrhosis. They wanted to know if giving albumin transfusions to maintain serum albumin above 30 reduced in-hospital death or infection rates. Oh, hang on. Can you just clarify why they wanted to look at infections? Yeah, sorry, I didn't mention that. So this is based on preclinical and small trial data showing that cirrhotic patients with a higher albumin might be less likely to get infections due to the immunomodulatory effects of having a bit more albumin swimming about. They tried to answer this question by randomizing 777 patients to either standard care or albumin transfusions to hit that 30 gram per liter target. The primary outcome, a composite of new infection, kidney dysfunction, or death in hospital, was 29.7% in the albumin group and 30.2% in the standard care group. So no difference. There were more serious adverse events, as you might expect, in the albumin group, notably pulmonary edema. So John, when should we be using albumin in cirrhotics? Cami, that is an excellent question and one that we have put to the lead author of this very trial, Dr. Louise China, and she'll be on a bonus episode shortly after this roundup. We talk through the entire trial with her in a bit more detail, and she gives us her top tips for managing patients with cirrhosis. So keep an eye out for that episode. But in the meantime, Alvin, I'm going to hand over to you for a bit more hepatology. Yeah, thanks, John. Indeed, I've got more hepatology for you guys and more from the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is terlipressin plus albumin in type 1 hepatorenal syndrome. Now type 1 hepatorenal syndrome or HRS is something often feared in cirrhotic patients as they are extremely sick and it's associated with a very poor prognosis. Based on the European guidelines, terlipressin is frequently recommended alongside albumin as the first line treatment for HRS in the UK. So published last month, the confidently named confirmed trial was designed to confirm the efficacy and safety of terlipressin compared to placebo in HRS1. Oh, Alvin, just remind me, uh, H or hepatorenal syndrome is uh, renal dysfunction in the context of cirrhosis. Is that broadly it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. There's two types you might remember. So type one is the very bad one, the acute one with the much worse prognosis, um, pretty much characterized by sort of rapid increase in creatinine, um, whereas the type two is uh, the more insidious one and I think presents more with ascites. This is a double-blinded RCT with the primary endpoint of reversal of HRS. The researchers found that a reversal of HRS was significantly higher in the terlipressin group than placebo at 32% versus 16%. So that's pretty convincing to me. From a safety point of view, unsurprisingly, there were higher rates of adverse events 
leading to discontinuation of the drug in the terlipressin group. And one particular striking result was actually really significantly higher rates of respiratory failure of 14% in the terlipressin group versus 5% in placebo. And now moving on to the outcome that we all care about, and that's mortality. They found 90-day mortality was actually slightly higher for the terlipressin group at 51% versus 45% in the placebo. Although we do have to remember that the trial was not powered for this outcome. Another interesting point I found is that there were actually slightly more patients in the placebo group that received a liver transplant than the terlipressin group. It could be speculated that reversal of HRS may have improved the MELD score, which is the model for end-stage liver disease score, for transplantation in the terlipressin group. And this actually uh, reduced transplantation rates. And the authors also suggest that perhaps it was the high rates of respiratory failure in the terlipressin group that might have also precluded transplantation. Adam, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. And I think, um, but really, really, I'm quite ashamed that actually, even though it improves HRS, it doesn't improve outcomes. Um, what sort of your, what's your take-home messages? Yeah, I've got a few take-home messages. So firstly, I think this shows terlipressin is beneficial in reversing HRS. So... I'm, I'll be happy to continue prescribing it, particularly as there's not many other treatment options, uh, especially in those unsuitable for liver transplants or even unsuitable for ITU. And don't forget, we can use terlipressin on the general medical wards. They don't have to go to ITU for this. Secondly, I think the frequency of the type 1 respiratory failure is worrying, and I will be sure to monitor for this uh, when I encounter these patients. Finally, the 90-day mortality rate of about 50% is a stark reminder just how poor the prognosis is. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really poor prognosis in that. Um, thanks for that um, update on Toe the Press and Alvin, and uh, hopefully that and the Albumin paper has served as a little reminder of the um, management of very complicated patient group. Yeah, and keep an eye out for the um, episode with Dr. Louise China coming up. Uh, in a few weeks. Uh, now, Cami, you're going to um, take the roundup into uncharted territory. We're heading back into the COVID zone. Take it away. Well, thank you, John. I am indeed. Now, I know we prefer hard-hitting RCTs and meta-analyses on journal spotting. However, I felt this case series was an important one to cover as it forms some of the evidence which led to a change in policy from the UK government regarding COVID vaccinations. So you probably know where I'm going with this, but clots after AstraZeneca. What do you guys think? Believers? Or is it just scaremongering? Gosh, yeah, there's been a lot of coverage, hasn't there? I increasingly am a believer, and I think probably you're going to give us a little update as to why we should also be believers. Absolutely. So we have all heard the rumours about clots after AstraZeneca vaccine. I personally wasn't quite convinced at first. However, as you've said, there does appear to be a very real, albeit very small, risk. This article is a case series of thrombotic thrombocytopenia after the AstraZeneca vaccine. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In Europe, by mid-March, approximately 20 million people had been vaccinated with AstraZeneca, a recombinant chimpanzee adenovirus which acts as a vector with encoded SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins. A number of strange thrombotic occurrences started to be noticed. Between Feb and March 15th of this year, a grand total of 11 occurrences were reported. Now the details. So nine of the 11 were women. The median age was 36. 
Symptoms started between five and 16 days after the vaccine. 10 patients presented with one or more thromboses and one with a fatal intracranial hemorrhage. Nine had cerebral venous thrombosis, three had splanchnik thrombosis, three had PE, five had DIC, and sadly six out of the 11 died. All patients had significantly reduced platelets. How, um, how low are we talking? Well, they reported the lowest counts during the admission, and the highest of these is 107, with the lowest being eight. So all patients have positive PF4 antibodies. These are also positives in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. Essentially, it looks like this vaccine can cause the same condition as HIT, which causes a nasty combination of clots with low platelets and increased bleeding risk. Notably, many of these patients went on to have low molecular weight heparin during their stay, which did not appear to make matters worse. Oh, I always found HIT such a difficult diagnosis to even sort of get your head around or contemplate. Um, this yeah. sounds like a really nasty complication. Is it going to put you off offering the vaccine to patients, Cammy? Well, I think it should be put into context with the UK data. So after 18 million AstraZeneca vaccinations, we had about 30 cases and seven deaths. So while this incidence may be an underestimation, it does give us a risk of about one in 2.5 million from dying from the jab. So the flu jab has a one in a million chance of causing Guillain-Barre syndrome. If 2.5 million 60-year-olds caught COVID, 50,000 of them would die. Also in the UK, if you're thinking of context, one in a thousand people might get a DVT or a PE in any given year. But if you're on the oral contraceptive or HRT, between two and 12 people per thousand might get one. Great. Okay. So that's helpful. So, I mean, the risks of this are absolutely tiny and that does seem to um, be very reassuring. So um, what do we need to think about when we're sort of uh, offering the vaccine to people? So I think the first thing to consider is age. But what really is different to other medications is the public's knowledge and media coverage of this. So if you're stuck with what to do, then there have been some really good flow charts developed, which we can put in the show notes to help clinicians decide who should or shouldn't be offered the AstraZeneca vaccine. And they can be really useful. I think the main issue is an ethical one, with patient choice, consent and autonomy being at the centre of debate. So basically, be aware of clots post-vaccine, but don't worry too much. If you think you see it, I'd probably recommend chatting to a friendly haematologist. But there are more guidelines that seem to be coming out all the time uh, on what to look for in primary care, such as I've recently read one about a prolonged headache post-vaccine, then we should always be referring them to secondary care. Overcautious? Maybe. But we love a guideline, so let's follow them. Yeah, I saw, um, I saw a tweet by Beverly Hunt, uh, who we've had on the podcast before, who was you know, suggesting that we need to be screening these post AZ vaccine headaches with uh, a D-dimer and a platelet count, and that that would then sort of make you decide whether you should have a CT. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, great. Well, Cammy, thank you for taking us back to the COVID zone, and we'll be returning later on for some more exciting stuff to share. But before, it wouldn't be a journal spotting episode if we didn't have another uh, paper about oxygen. Barney. Don't sound so bloody excited, John. (laughs) (laughs) calm down a little bit (laughs) all right breathless sorry not sorry from me as i predictably dive into a few respiratory pearls all of our regular journal junkies will have heard me rant about oxygen before too low saturations obviously kills but so does too high 
One area with a reasonable amount of evidence is in ACS and STEMIs. The theory, too much oxygen causes vasoconstriction, especially in coronary and cerebral arteries, which makes infarcts worse and outcomes badder. This has been proven in studies and is backed by guidelines such as in the European Society of Cardiology. But life is never that simple, my friends. Published in the BMJ, this large study from New Zealand was a pragmatic cluster randomized crossover trial. They looked at nearly 41,000 cases of suspected ACS and prospectively split them into those who received high flow oxygen, which is six to eight liters flow via face mask, aiming for saturations more than 95%, and low flow, where oxygen was only given if the saturations were less than 90% and the target was less than 95. Primary outcome was 30 day mortality with pre specified subgroup analysis to compare STEMI versus NSTEMI. To cut to the chase, there was no difference between the oxygen groups in 30-day mortality, which was about 3% each. This difference did not change depending on whether it was an STEMI or STEMI, although there was a non-significant trend to benefit with high-flow oxygen in the STEMI group. There was also no difference in one-year mortality. Okay, Barney, so previously you've warned us about the harms of oxygen. Does this trial fit into your paradigm? It doesn't really change things too much. I mean, but it does make that muddy puzzle a bit murkier. There are a couple of significant issues with the study though, such as that in the high flow oxygen group, only 42% of patients actually received oxygen for varying reasons. They only looked at suspected ACS, and it turns out two thirds of patients, like in real life, did not have ACS. Also, it was extremely difficult to tell if the protocol was being followed in the majority of patients. Yeah, I guess, it's not unreasonable to look at suspected ACS as that is the context in which they were, you know, that is the context in which people get oxygen. Yeah. Right. I think it's sort of reasonable to have, have, have used that patient group, but yeah, I guess, uh, you know, are we, are we going to be going back to putting 15 liters non rebreathe for every chest patient we see? What do you think? Probably not. Yeah. Look, I would still suggest not. And is this paper actually going to change my practice? Probably not but it will make those post-take ward round discussions that bit more tedious for my sleeping medical students, and it will make writing the next oxygen guidance that bit more complicated too. I guess it does sort of say that, I mean, what it is saying potentially is that oxygen is safe, right? Yeah, um, it's, yeah. It's, it's probably safe, but I think there, there were, I mean, even though it was a really big study, as I say, what we want to know is actually, does it cause damage in ACS and STEMI? Previous trials have shown that it probably does. Um, yeah. but is it going to massively affect mortality and things like that in suspected ACS? Probably not. Yeah. Probably other things. Regardless, I would imagine writing an oxygen guideline very much is going to be the pinnacle of your career for you. Is that what you're aiming for, Barney? National oxygen guideline? That'd hey, be a dream. Why, not? why not? Who knows? You know, only time <laughs> will tell. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, Barney, if oxygen guidelines is your dream, I think Alvin, your dream is maybe, is it to become the first dual trained geriatrician nephrologist? <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> he um, is a ticking now... mate before, to, before you can retrain. <laughs> Now, before everyone starts yawning at the thought of another renal study, I thought I'd you know, try and wake everyone up with a bit of a case study. Right, so just imagine one of your patients has developed an AKI stage three. Let's call her Anne. So Mrs. Anne Urich, uh, her potassium is safe and her pH is normal. 
Your excellent clinical skills have determined she's eubulimic, but her creatinine keeps rising, as does her urea, which is now at 42. So Barney, uh, are you gonna sit tight and uh, wait it out or refer her for some renal replacement therapy? Why are you picking on me? <laughs> <laughs> right, oh, okay, I've been right, look, she's, she's uh, not, the pH is okay, potassium's okay, um, and she's not particularly overloaded. So she's not really meeting any of the, the usual uh, criteria for urgent dialysis. And I do remember paying a little bit of attention to John, who was rambling on about um, a meta-analysis a while ago, which showed no benefit in early dialysis. So I am going to sit and hold tight. Yep, well remembered. Now, one of the trials included in that meta-analysis that John presented was the Akiki trial. And interestingly, they used a urea of greater than 40 millimoles and oligoanuria for 72 hours as actually a criteria for starting RRT on top of the traditional indications of hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, and pulmonary edema. That's really interesting, Alvin. Um, especially as a kiki, I'm pretty sure a kiki is what the French um, call a, uh, a penis. So, uh, <laughs> Um, well interestingly i think the authors of this trial were actually french so that would make sense (laughs) um Um, cammy i do believe you are half french can you confirm this um i think so yes although i think it's what they would call a little boy's penis like yeah really in english i don't think they around saying how's your kiki <laughs> then again, how often do they say how's your penis? Well, I don't know quite regularly actually in uh, in hospital and things. <laughs> oh, oh, anyway, Alvin, apologies. Okay, um, look, uh, that, uh, the reason actually that is, is interesting is because urea and oligorrhea, um are not usually your typical um, indications for dialysis. So that's an interesting uh, thing they're looking at. Yeah, you're right. They're not textbook indications. Um, so now allow me to introduce a Kiki too. Um, So the same researchers are now asking whether we can ignore the high urea or oligoanuria and actually just wait for the other well-established complications. The inclusion criteria was ICU patients with AKI stage 3, ventilated or on vasopressors, with a urea of greater than 40 or oligoanuria for 72 hours. These patients were then randomised into the traditional delayed group who received RRT immediately and they compared this with a more delayed group which they creatively named the more delayed group and this group was allowed to have their urea rise up to 50 and there was no limit as to how long they could be oligoanuric for. The results showed the primary outcome of number of RRT free days did not differ between the two groups but what's really interesting is the 60-day mortality was higher in the more delayed group at 55% versus 44% in the traditional delayed group. And they also demonstrated with pre-specified multivariable analysis that the more delayed strategy had a mortality hazard ratio of 1.65. And this had confidence intervals of 1.09 to 2.50. So this was statistically significant. So going back to our patient, and Uric, do you think you'd dialyze her? So, Alvin, I've got it right. It sounds like 
delaying it until the urea goes above 40 or if they've oligoric for more than three days actually infers harm and probably we should be dialyzing you know before we get to that point so yeah i certainly would be more inclined to be thinking about dialysis a bit earlier but alvin these are these patients are itu intubated vasopressors right yeah, that's, that's a good patient. point um yeah the trial was done on this pretty sick cohort of patients in itu mm. so whether we can translate that to you know our ward patients is probably not as clear uh, yeah. but certainly probably helpful for um you know the intensivists and um certainly i think it does highlight you know uh, a relatively early referral for itu might be justified yeah it's nice to carry on this narrative from the last meta-analysis alvin thanks for uh, bringing that one up I think you've got another renal paper for us, another myth to debunk maybe. Yeah, so I've got a really interesting paper next. This is Association of Intravenous Radio Contrast with Kidney Function, published in JAMA Internal Medicine. This was an observational study performed in Canada and included patients who had a D-dimer measured during an emergency department visit. They used a, a clever sounding method called fuzzy regression discontinuity design method, which just sounds wacky, but also very clever. Sounds amazing. Yeah. And what this does is uh, it uses the principle whereby patients just above the lab cutoff for a D-dimer, for example, 500 nanograms, are likely to be very similar in characteristic to those just below the cutoff. But the key difference is that those just above the cutoff are much more likely to receive a CTPA and therefore be exposed to contrast. So this really clever methodology kind of mimics randomization of patients into exposure versus non-exposure groups and helps reduce confounding. That is cool. <laughs> no reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so cool, man. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, man. Very cool, cool, man. That's cool. That is cool. <laughs> you guys don't know what you guys don't know what cool is. Fuzzy regression's cool. Carry on, Alvin. Sorry. It is really cool. Uh, after I finally got my head around it. Um, <laughs> Thanks for entertaining had... my uh, cool comment. <laughs> They had over 156,000 individuals, so huge numbers in a population study. And um, the researchers found for their primary outcome that at six months, exposure to IV contrast was associated with a reduction of EGFR of just 0.4 mils per minute. And actually the confidence interval stretches from minus 4.9 to 4.0. So this wasn't even statistically significant. Now, for the secondary outcomes, they also found there was no association of CTPA exposure with the need for renal replacement therapy or mortality. Okay, so the, the primary outcome of the trial is EGFR reduction, but then they did actually look at something quite interesting of sort of need for renal replacement and death. That's quite, that's quite helpful. Does this now mean that we can kind of finally forget about the creatinine when ordering CT scans, Alvin? This may well be another nail in the coffin for the myth that is intravenous contrast nephropathy. So yeah, I think it does add to the growing evidence that contrast is pretty safe and we probably overestimate the risk in hospital. 
The one issue I do have with the study is that the main baseline EGFR participants was 86 mils per minute. So this might not quite represent the patients we truly worry about, which tends to be the CKD4 and the CKD5s. Having said that, they did offer a subgroup analysis by looking at those with an EGFR of less than 45 and found, again, that there was no significant change in the EGFR. Although the authors do warn us that this subgroup analysis may be underpowered. Yeah, thanks for picking out that detail on the baseline EGFR. It seems useful if we're going to translate it into clinical practice. Also, just as a plug for the EM, uh, not EM crit, IBCC um, post about contrasted use nephropathy and how it is probably a myth. It's very good. And if anyone's interested, I'll go give it a read. Barney, I think we're heading over to you uh, for some familiar territory. You've got a bit on uh, respiratory infections. I do indeed. All right, I'll crack on with my first article of these. So in Britain, if you're not from Britain, we love to talk about the weather and uh, closely linked to our cloudy and grey and frequently sunless British skies, we love to talk about vitamin D, especially in our little respiratory niche. I think, I think this has to be the most studied vitamin in the world, right? Uh, yeah, I've actually, I saw you're going to talk about this. And I've actually done a literature search <laughs> for all articles of vitamin D and all articles of vitamin C. So little vote, who thinks? I thought vitamin C was the obvious alternative. Okay. Cammy, what do you think? No, D or C? D, yeah. Uh, well, which one now? I think D's probably one. D. Yeah. Alvin, D or C? Mm, it's got to be D. I just see it everywhere. Yeah. It's D by 20,000 papers. Oh. Uh, so there were like 62,000 papers on vitamin D and about 40,000 on vitamin C. Well, That's one database. But there we that go. Is, that is a good take home point from, uh, from the, probably the main one people take home from this. Episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this article, which I'm going to be talking about, was published in The Lancet. And it is a re-meta-analysis of the use of vitamin D in preventing acute respiratory infections. Now, if you are up to date with one of those 60,000 articles and uh, the, uh, you know, the latest vitamin D meta-analyses, I mean, who face it? Who isn't? then you will be aware that in 2017, they found that there was a significant benefit in reducing infections with vitamin D. And this was more significant the lower your vitamin D level at baseline. This current meta-analysis has four times the number of participants, close to 50,000, and included a number of more recent randomized controlled trials. The findings? Overall, yes. Vitamin D supplementation does significantly lower the risk of an individual having an acute respiratory infection over a year. The incidence of infection dropped from 62.3% in placebo groups all the way to the dizzying lows of 61.3% in the treatment groups. For those of you who aren't quick as a flash doing maths, this gives you a number needed to treat of 100. There are, of course, some caveats. The trials were very heterogeneous, with different types, dosing and timing of vitamin D in different populations. This may have underestimated the effect, although some bias in some studies may have overestimated it. The most benefit was found in groups receiving a daily dose of 400 to 1,000 units, which is not a very high dose. It's a pretty standard dose. And they found particularly high benefits in children. Interestingly, there was no increased benefit from this analysis in those who had a low vitamin D level at baseline. So it didn't matter what your level of vitamin D was, just being on a fairly low level of supplementation 
appears to reduce your risk of respiratory infections. And before you ask, the authors clearly state we cannot yet extrapolate this to COVID. So vitamin D for all your respiratory patients then, Barney, yeah? Yeah, well, I mean, I want to see a bit more accurate data in specific subgroups like bronchiexis, CAPD, TB, etc. And quite a lot of work has been done in those already. But yes, I think it is worth suggesting vitamin D supplementation to virtually all patients or people and children, regardless of their vitamin D level, especially over the winter months and especially to those who are most at risk. This data supports this. I'll also continue to give my son his five magic drops of vitamin D at breakfast whenever I remember or he doesn't point blank refuse and I haven't had a coffee, so I haven't, got the, haven't got the fight in me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, brilliant, Barney. Well, maybe we should randomise him into a vitamin D trial. Get him in. Might <laughs> as well. He quite enjoys them even though they taste absolutely disgusting, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have circled all the way back to the COVID zone, Cammy. Got another COVID trial for us. This one's quite big. Not big in size, big in impact. Yeah, I'm quite excited about this. Yeah, can we tell us about it? Well, I'm glad you're excited, boys, because rewind to a year ago, we were discussing how many patients with chronic respiratory disease were not catching severe COVID. Was this because they were isolating? Or did their disease or treatment somehow protect them? Later reports stated that inhaled steroids were probably not responsible for this underrepresentation. But that did not deter this study, which was already underway. So what I'm going to talk about is the STOIC trial, inhaled budesonide in the treatment of early COVID-19. This study from Oxfordshire was an open-label parallel group phase two randomised control trial of inhaled budesonide compared with usual care in adults within seven days of the onset of mild COVID-19 symptoms. They randomised 146 participants and those in the treatment group were asked to stop using the inhaler when their symptoms resolved. Budesonide was delivered by a dry powder turbohaler at a dose of 800 micrograms, so two puffs twice a day, which, am I right in thinking, Barney, is a pretty high dose? So they were getting um, 800, so 1,600 micrograms twice a day, so 3,200 over a day. That is a whoppingly massive dose and yeah. it's higher than I've um, ever seen in our asthmatics or anything like that. We would never use that high. Yeah, even I worked out that was a lot of uh, in inhaled steroid. So the primary endpoint was COVID-19 related A&E assessment or hospitalisation. They also had a number of secondary outcomes, um, including self-reported symptom resolution, which was done using questionnaires temperature, saturations, and SARS-CoV-2 viral load. Now, the exciting part, drum roll, please. A very slow drum. Oh, I know, yeah, look, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. The trial was stopped early after independent statistical review concluded that the study outcome would not change with further participant enrollment. Ooh, you've got our attention now. Did I not what have it, it before? <laughs> <laughs> So, what did they find? I hear you ask. The primary outcome of an urgent care visit occurred in 15% of participants in the usual care group compared with 3% in the budesonide group, giving a number needed to treat to avoid this outcome of 8. Budesonide essentially did better across the board, with the budesonide group having a shorter clinical recovery, less days with fever, less use of antipyretic medication, less symptoms at 14 and 28 day follow-up, 
and the budesonide group also had a better score change in their viral symptom questionnaires compared to the control. Is this an open label trial? Were they blinded? Yeah, open label. It's open. It would have really, been yeah. hard to do otherwise, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it's self-reported, yeah. isn't it? So the outcomes are a bit, maybe a bit more wishy-washy. The other thing to note is that blood oxygen saturations and SARS-CoV-2 viral load were no different between the groups. Budesonide was safe with only 5 or 7% of participants reporting self-limiting adverse events. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty incredible finding and it looks like it could be practice changing. Well, funny you should say that, Alvin. In my inbox on the 12th of April was a delightful update uh, guideline from the Chief Medical Officer stating that we can, in fact, now give inhaled corticosteroids in COVID, but not for everyone. This off-label use can be given for over 65s or over 50s with comorbidities, and the dose is around half of that in the STOIC trial. But you guys can, can read the update when it comes, comes around to you. Mm. Oh, thanks, Kenny. And again, I think that's really interesting and, and pretty exciting. And it sounds like another positive trial. Um, you know, we probably will get more data on it as time goes on, but it looks like it does make it quite a significant difference. So that's awesome. Right. Let's consolidate our learning with a bit of antibiotics and community acquired pneumonia. Consolidation. Mm. Nice yeah, one. thank you. Yeah, got it. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> Imagine your typical patient, guys. Um, they come in coughing up green phlegm, got a fever, they're unwell. How many days of antibiotics do you think you're going to put on, the, on your prescription chart to start with? Seven days. Seven, okay. Yeah, I'll just go with seven. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think seven is really common. The NICE guidance actually states five days should be sufficient. The USA you know, agrees with NICE. Of course. Yeah, why, do the, why do the leg work if someone's already done it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the European guidance says eight days. So this bloody, bloody Brussels making, <laughs> us, <laughs> making us have an extra day of antibiotics. God, it's good way, good way out. <laughs> why not? Why not? Keep them in for longer. Um, this double blinded RCT from France, published in The Lancet, rounded up 700 adults with moderately severe community acquired pneumonia and prescribed beta lactam monotherapy, in this case, Kermoxclav. This essentially included everyone sick enough to be admitted to hospital, but not sick enough for ITU. All the patients who were then clinically stable at three days of treatment, and this was about 300 of them, were split to either have placebo or continue Kermoxclav for another five days. So that would make it eight days in total. The primary outcome used was cure from pneumonia at 15 days of treatment, and the secondary outcomes included cure at 30 days, or cause mortality at 30 days, and adverse events. Guess what, folks? Three days was non-inferior to eight days of Kermoxclav in. Cure at 15 days, cure at 30 days, adverse events, the most common being gastro symptoms related to antibiotics, and all-cause mortality, which was 2% in the placebo group and 1% in the treatment group. Most of these were from cardiovascular events. So three days was just as good as eight days in treating pneumonia. I suppose you're going to tell us how this is good for patients and hospitals? Well, clearly there are some major benefits here. Cost, side effects, resistance, and possibly even length of hospital stays. But... Before we cross off the last few days of treatment on the drug chart and shuffle poor, rigoring Granny Goggins out the door, there are a couple of things to think about. The first is obvious. 
These patients were all clinically stable at three days, i.e. not spiking fevers, not hypoxic, etc. So what this study really tells us is that once patients are clinically well, the antibiotics job is properly done. Also, they were all on beta-lactams. It's possible patients might need longer courses with penallergic options. Finally, the follow-up was short at 30 days, so we don't know how many patients may have had relapses further down the line. So do you think this might lead to a change in guidelines then? Well, I think clinically guided antibiotic course lengths are what we should all be aiming for rather than a random number of days plucked from our Roman calendar system. But I do suspect that more evidence might be needed to swing the guidelines just yet. Nice, Barney. That's really helpful. You're going to save your patients some antibiotics and you're going to save the hospital a bit of money. Win-win. That's what I'm here uh, for. That's what I'm here for. I am going to finish uh, the roundup with a quick case, um, just to keep us on our toes. 74-year-old lady with non-valvular AF and a previous pulmonary embolism is on rivaroxaban. Uh, she likes to be known as anti-K, not sure why. Uh, she's admitted to hospital with a non-life-threatening upper GI bleed that is successfully treated. You go and see her on the morning ward round, and um, she has two questions. Firstly, is rivaroxaban the safest DOAC to take? For the risk of bleeding or is there a safer one and when should re she restart it if at all some tough questions i think doe apps are meant to be safer than warfarin but i think that's all i've got on that yeah so that is broadly correct uh so there are two papers that's going to help try and answer these questions the first is a meta-analysis published in the european journal of gastroenterology and hepatology they wanted to compare the risk of major gi bleeding across all the different doacs and sort of try and give an overall idea of the risk between each one. Uh, the meta-analysis showed that of the DOACs, five milligrams of apixaban had the lowest risk of major GI bleeding with a 40% lower risk compared to, for example, 20 milligrams of rivaroxaban. So apixaban, and I think we kind of knew this before, is probably the safer um, from a GI bleeding perspective. 40% is actually much, much higher than I would have thought. Yeah, that's massive. Okay. Yeah, or lower, lower risk, but yeah. The second question is when to restart the DOAC. Um, the data kind of shows that half of patients actually permanently stop their oral anticoagulation, either DOAC or warfarin, after a GI bleed. Uh, but this puts them at increased risk of thrombosis and even possibly dying. Um, so this large retrospective study in Canada, um, it used linked data records in 3,874 patients over the age of 65 on any anticoagulant who were admitted to hospital with a bleed. And then they looked at subsequently what happened after that bleed and linked it to um, DOAC prescribing. In their cohort, 43% of whom were on a DOAC, 70.5% of patients had their oral anticoagulant resumed within one year of the bleed with a median time of resumption of 46 days. Patients that resumed oral anticoagulation had a 40% relative risk reduction in thrombosis and 45.9% relative risk reduction in death, but that came with an increased relative risk of subsequent bleeding of 88.4%. I suppose one thing as well about that is you're probably more likely to restart the DOAC in the, um, in the well patient who you're less worried about who isn't going to die soon. So there may be some confounder there, I guess. Yeah, and I think you've um, hit the nail on the head, Barney, is that this is quite a messy study. Uh, there are loads and loads of confounders and quite a lot of holes to pick in the paper. And you're right, it is the more well patients that had the 
um, oral anticoagulation restarted. But I think what, what I felt the study was highlighting was that we don't actually really know when to resume it and who we need to be resuming it earlier and who we need to be resuming later. Um, the latest meta-analysis on this very topic has 3,000 patients included in it, and it includes 12 observational studies. The point being there's no RCTs on this. Um, so for now, the sort of decision to restart a DOAC has to be a kind of careful, individualized discussion with the patient about harms versus benefits, but we don't really have any um, sort of good trial data to guide us. So what's our answer to Auntie Kay's questions? Yeah, so in summary to the two questions, based on these two studies, it looks like a Pixaban would be the safer option. And we probably need to have a longer chat about when to actually restart the DOAX. And we probably need a bit more information about her case because it is actually such a individualized decision about harms versus benefits. So yeah, tricky questions and ones that I think we get confronted with quite frequently. And it's interesting to see that we don't really know the answer based on any evidence. I like your take home there, John. You know, the take-home point from that practice changing take-home point is uh, have a bit of a longer chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. But it's true. It's absolutely true. And it just shows how complex this, um, this is. And, you know, you, you need to take it on an individual basis. Brilliant. I'm Thank hammering you. the point home that we don't know. We don't know. I think it's very clear. It's good. Yeah. Right. Great, folks. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you all to all the journal spotters for inoculating us with your... Uh, Akiki trials and all your vials of uh, medical literature. Gosh, that's awful. I do apologize, listeners. And um, let's finish off by all giving our favorite practice changing points from the roundup. So, who's going to go first? Alvin? Yeah. What is your favorite practice changing point on, of what we talked about? So, I really like the budesonide inhaler for early COVID. It sounds like it's already practice changing. And hopefully, uh, and it's great that we've got an option for, you know, our community patients and the non-hospitalised patient as well. Is it really bad if I say the same one? But as a GP in primary care, that one is definitely already changing. So I think that's, like you say, most practice changing right now. Mm, I'm going to go with the shortened antibiotic course in respiratory infections. I actually think uh, we are so stuck in our ways about how long to give antibiotics for and don't think about it enough that maybe trials like these are what we need to get people to have a bit more confidence in prescribing shorter courses. And I'm actually, despite your wiffle waffle uh, practice changing points, John, I'm going to go for your study about the um, apixaban being having a 40% less bleeding risk than rivaroxaban. I think that's, um, that's actually, I think that's really important and really quite useful information. So thanks for that happy to help <laughs> brilliant well thanks very much listeners and remember to check out our next episode which is a journal chat with dr louise china covering the affirm trial that hopefully will be in your podcast feed very shortly until then inhale some budesonide and stay safe actually don't do job. that that's not that's not advice <laughs> that's not medical advice <laughs> bye everyone <laughs> take care all bye You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Jonathan Hudson, Dr. Cami Hirons, and Dr. Alvin Schrester. Information on today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at Journal Spotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady, Natalia, graphics man Costa, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. 
If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave us a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed or opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.